All right, how's everybody doing? Nope, not going to do. How's everybody doing? Good, it's good to be together. Uh, we're going to be in Psalm 73, and I don't have a lot of time. As you'll notice, if you turn to Psalm 73, uh, Psalm 73 is 28 verses. So as I was preparing and I was doing the math, I'm like, if I spend two minutes on each verse, then how long is this sermon? Oh, y'all don't do math either. Okay, it's 56 minutes. That don't include the introduction, the conclusion. That don't include nothing. Uh, so we got we to gotta dive in uh, to, to Psalm uh, 73. And even as the ushers are passing out the offering, I do want to just thank you uh, for, uh, I know most people don't actually give in the worship service. It's 2022. A lot of us who are members of the church, we give online. But I really do thank you for your generosity and the ways that together uh, we're able to see the Lord just do so much and bear so f- uh, much fruit through the ministry here. Psalm 73, let me ask you a couple questions before we dive in. And I've studied this passage. Uh, it's one of my favorite psalms. I've taught from this passage. Uh, but uh, we've been in this series called A Psalm for Everything. And we call it A Psalm for Everything because there's a psalm for everything. Um, there's a psalm for every situation and season in life that guides us at, as we hopefully, prayerfully um, uh, walk with God in the midst of it. Um, and uh, I think God has a fresh where he wants to give us uh, through this psalm. Let me ask you a couple questions just to tee up what we're going to talk about in the psalm. And I don't want you to just hear these and let them go in one ear out the other. I really want you to process these personally. So here we go. Have you ever felt like following Jesus was keeping you from something? Have you ever gone through a time where you doubted God's goodness? Have you ever found yourself discouraged as you compared your life to other people's lives? As you see suffering and injustice in the world, has it ever caused you to doubt whether God is good or whether God is even real? Have you ever been angry at God because you felt like your circumstances were unfair? I could keep going with questions. But all of those different questions are manifestations of what we're going to talk about in this psalm. Those questions are manifestations of doubt. Doubt. And I want to say off the top, if you're new to our church, I wish there was a sign outside the doors that said, Doubters Welcome. And I think we'll see that in uh, here in, in the psalm. Let me give you just short context. These are song lyrics. So the psalms are like a songbook for the people of Israel um, to use during their worship gatherings. And the songwriter is a man named Asaph. And, uh, and we'll look more at him. But he wrote this song out of his own personal experience so that God's people for generations to come will remember the goodness of God and be encouraged in times of doubt. And so off the top, he emphatically kind of makes his point in verse 1. And it's 28 verses. We're not going to read through all of them uh, at, at once. We're just going to walk through them. Um, So verse 1, Asaph writes, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now that's a doctrinal statement. That's, That's a statement of faith. So that's a general principle that we see all throughout scripture. God is good. And in particular, God is especially uniquely good to his people, to those who are pure in heart, to those who whose hearts are fully devoted to him. We see that all throughout scripture. And what this psalm explores in verse 2 through 28 is what do you do when this seems like it isn't true? Because what we're going to see is Asaph is struggling with what I'll call a crisis of faith. So let me define what a crisis of faith is so we're all on the same page. A crisis of faith is when what you believe conflicts with what you experience. A crisis of faith is what you be- when what you believe or, or, or what you have believed or what your parents believed conflicts with what you experience. Tim Keller calls it spiritual vertigo. Now, we all kind of know what vertigo, vertigo is. I know it's like you're dizzy, whatever. I didn't know how it works, so I looked it up. Let me, let me read it to you. What, what, what this means. Vertigo is, listen, the false sense that your surroundings are spinning or moving. With inner ear disorders, here's what happens. Your brain receives signals from the inner ear 
that aren't consistent with what your eyes and sensory nerves are receiving. Vertigo is what results as your brain works to sort out the confusion. So you follow what happens in vertigo. Your brain receives signals that don't line up with what you're actually seeing. And it causes dizziness. And so vertigo is what happens when you're trying to sort that through. And so Tim Keller calls a crisis of faith spiritual vertigo because that's how it works. It's a conflict between what you believe or what you know to be true, what you heard to be true, and what you actually experience. And that's disorienting. Because everything that you thought was sure and certain and stable, what you thought was a good foundation, now all of a sudden begins to feel shaky. And let me pause for a second and say, I don't think we as churches often do a good job of helping to disciple people and lead people through crises of faith. We don't create space for doubt. We either either shun doubt because doubt is evil Or in more progressive circles, we embrace doubt as now our truth. And we allow our doubts to become more authoritative than God's word. But scripture doesn't do either one of those extreme. What we see in Psalm 73 is that God actually invites our doubts into his presence so that he can help us sort through them. So when we're in a crisis of faith, God wants to lead us through that. And this is why, y'all, this is why casual Christianity is honestly not worth Living because casual Christianity cannot sustain you in a crisis of faith. This is why as parents, we can't raise our kids with a casual, superficial Christianity. Because especially in emerging generations, they see right through it. And so what happens is now all of a sudden, you graduate, you get out of the house, you go to college, and your professor says something to you that shakes your faith. There's a conflict between what you believed or what you've heard was true and what you actually experienced. Now all of a sudden, the people that you grew up hearing were depraved, and there was nothing good about them or whatever. Now all of a sudden, you get into the workforce, and those people that were seen as depraved and just trying to, like, ruin America and all that, you realize they're delightful people. They're intelligent people. They're kind people. They care about other people. They care about the same things that you care about. They invite you into their home. There's a a conflict between what you believe or what you've heard was true and what you actually experience, and that can cause you to have a crisis of faith. Because we've created this false dichotomy between doubt and faith. And we say, if I'm experiencing doubt, then that must mean I either don't have faith or I must abandon my faith. And scripture says those things are never mutually exclusive. Doubt is a part of the process of growing and strengthening your faith. And so Asaph is experiencing doubt. He's in a crisis of faith. That's what we see in verse 2. Doctrinal statement, he says, God is good. Yes, I know. I grew up hearing that. I, I, I grew up saying that, right? But verse 2, he says, and I'm way past my two minutes per one verse. We're going to speed it up. Verse 2, he says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. What he's saying, this is Hebrew literature. What he's saying is, Life with God is often pictured in the Old Testament as walking with God like up a mountain. And he's saying here, when he says he almost slipped, he's saying I almost got to the point where I I threw away my faith, where I walked away from God. And this should be good news for us because Asaph, if you read, we won't go to it, but if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verse 4, Asaph is actually the chief the chief of the worship leaders in the Levitical priesthood. He's a leader. And he's saying he's experiencing a crisis of faith. And he explains that more in verse 3. Here's what led to his crisis of faith. He says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, who's Asaph talking about? He doesn't tell us specifically, but he calls them wicked. So we know that They live profane lives. They don't love God. They don't love their neighbor. Um, And so some people think he's talking about the surrounding pagan nations. I personally think he's talking about other ungodly Israelites who have walked away, abandoned covenant faithfulness to God. And I think that because down in verse 27, he refers to them as unfaithful, which is covenant language. 
So I think these are people who grew up religious but now have pursued worldly acceptance, worldly success, and they've abandoned God's word. And, and it seems to have worked out for them. So look at how Asaph describes them. Number one, they're prosperous. We saw that in verse 3. But they're so prosperous that it looks like they don't even have any problems. So verse 4 says, for they have no pangs. That's just a way of sound. I don't know why they didn't say pains. They, they have no pains until death. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. New Living Translation says, they are free from common human burdens. We know what that feels like when you look at other people and you're like, must be nice. Right? They, these are people, they got house cleaners. They got trust funds. Their PTA is well funded. They got access to, to the best medical care. Their neighborhoods enjoy disproportionate economic investment. Their kids got personal trainers and like all kind of stuff. And you look at all of that and you're like, that, that must be nice. And those things that I mentioned, those aren't bad things in and of themselves. So listen, if you're wealthy, you don't have to feel guilty about it because the problem here in this verse is not just that they're prosperous. Number two, they're prideful. They're pro look at verse six. It says, therefore, so based on their prosperity, their pride is their necklace and violence covers them as a garment. In other words, they're prideful. They think so highly of themselves. They look down on other people. And, and, and so they treat people a certain kind of way. They're, they're, they, they look down on other people, so they think they can treat people however they want, which is violence here. And you think about the imagery of a necklace and a garment. It's saying they flaunt their pride. There's no shame in their game at all. Verse 7, it says their eyes swell through fatness. They're engorged. They're, they're well fed. Their hearts overflow with follies. Verse 8 says they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. The heavens is just a way of saying God. They set their mouths against God. And their tongue, I love this imagery, struts. Some translations say their tongue parades through the earth. These people are so arrogant and prideful, not just toward other people, but even toward God. And then number three, they're popular. They're popular. Look at verse 10. It says, therefore, his people turn back to them. I think them is talking about these prosperous, prideful people. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? What he's saying here is that these prosperous, prideful people are also super popular, so much so that other Israelites abandon God to follow these people. Look at those people's lives and say, you know what? Why am I over here being faithful to God when I can have all that? I can live my best life like they are. I can be accepted academically and intellectually and professionally like they are. And so they abandon faith in God in order to fit in and to follow the path of the prosperous here. To the point of even blaspheming God. In verse 12, Asaph finishes up his assessment. Verse 12 he says, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, and they increase in riches. You see what he's saying? He's saying, look at how these people live. He's saying they're not even good people, but they live the good life. Now, just short sidebar here. This is what envy does to the human soul. Like, even if you're not a Christian, this is true just all of us as human beings. This is what envy does to us. It distorts our perspective. And it does it in two ways. It makes us over-exaggerate the good in other people's lives. So you see Asaph use extreme language. He says in verse 4, he says, they have no pains. Verse 12, he says, they are always at ease. Now, come on, Asaph knows it's not true. Like rich people got rich people problems. You know what I'm saying? Like he knows but he's using extreme language to express this deep pain, like what he's feeling. It feels like they don't have any problems. So it causes you to over-exaggerate the good in other people's lives, and it causes you to underappreciate God's goodness in your own life. 
That's what happens in verse 14. He says, he's suffering all day long. And new suffering comes his way every morning. Nothing good. Only suffering. You see what he's saying? He's saying these people don't have any problems, and I seem to only have problems. And envy is like that. It's a microscopic lens. It causes you to focus in on the good in other people's lives, and then it actually blocks out the goodness of God in your own life. And it just drags you down into despair and discouragement. And this is what happens to Asaph. But that's not the most painful part. Here's the most painful part. Notice the words he uses in verse 14. He says, for, the, for all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. I think he's, saying, he's talking about he feels stricken and rebuked by God. What he's saying is, God, I've done all this for you, but what are you doing for me? God, I've given you my whole life. And you refuse to give me this thing in my life. The thing that I'm desiring, the thing that I'm praying for. God, I've been as faithful as I can be to you. And I'm watching these people who aren't faithful to you at all. They mock you. They don't obey you. And it seems like you're blessing them with, with the same things that I'm asking you for. I'm not asking you for sin. I'm just asking you for the desires of my heart. And I think that's what draws him to the conclusion in verse 13. This is the conclusion he draws from his crisis of faith. Verse 13, he says, all in faith, all, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. He says, this has all been in vain. This is, and I don't have time to, 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 to dive into it, but this is what we see in our culture. There's a super popular word called deconstruction. And there's a healthy deconstruction, which is separating culture from Scripture. Of examining, okay, what is just my parents gave me that or culture says that or whatever versus what God actually says and what God actually requires. Healthy deconstruction is when you are separating culture from scripture. Unhealthy deconstruction is when you are elevating culture over scripture. You're elevating your own preferences over scripture. And Asaph is at a point in his life where he's tempted to just deconstruct his faith in an unhealthy way. And this is the question that I think is up underneath verse 13. And honestly, it, this is question is one of my greatest fears. Now, I have a couple of greatest fears. I, I don't know why, but I, I have the greatest fear of being stranded and stuck out in the, in the middle of the ocean. I don't know why. It, nothing happened in my childhood. I think I, what's the Tom Hanks movie? I think I watched that movie or something like that. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't, I'm cast away. I don't know why, but I'm terrified. Another great fear is going to prison for a lot of reasons, okay? <laughs> All right? But let me tell you what one of my greatest fears, this is my greatest fear, my greatest fear, hands down. It's the question I think is underneath verse 13. What if, what if I've been wrong about all of this the whole time? That is my greatest fear. After making a decision to follow Jesus, and believing the gospel, and not just believing the gospel, but as we just finished singing, building my life on the gospel and denying myself and pursuing what God says is important over what the world says is important. After doing all of that, my greatest fear is, what if I've been wrong about this the whole time? And listen to me, if the way you are following Jesus doesn't make you feel that vulnerability, then you're not really following Jesus. Because following Jesus is taking up your cross and following him. Following Jesus is saying, I'm giving it all up because I trust you. I, I, I'm selling the whole field because I found the pearl of great price. That's what following Jesus is. And so if nothing in your life, in your relationship with Jesus, causes you a little bit of anxiety like, yo, if this is wrong, I'm screwed, then you're not truly following Jesus. 
You think about what it costs to really follow. I'm not talking about casual, superficial Christianity, just going to church and giving up your neat hour and 15 minutes on a Sunday. I'm talking about following Jesus with your entire life. Like, let me give you just one little basic example. Like, when I, and I have, don't judge me, but if you calculate, if you, like, give regularly to the church, which I do, I've, I should not do this, but I calculated, like, how much money I give to McLean Bible Church. Y'all, we could live in a different zip code. We could have, I couldn't get a boat, but I could rent one. Um, like when I think about annually how much money I just give away, if this isn't true, you think about ways that you've denied yourself, the urges of your flesh, desires of your heart, simply because the Bible says that's sin. Think about the sacrifices that you've made to participate in God's mission or relationships that you've had to walk away from or whatever it is. Like, what if this isn't true? And what if I've been wrong about this the whole time? And I think Asaph is kind of at that point in verse 13 where he's like, this is all in vain. I thought it was was obeying God was worth it. And now I'm wondering, was it? Because what I have believed conflicts with what I'm actually experiencing. And that's what brought him to a crisis of faith. It was as he looked out at the prosperity of those who were not following God and the suffering that he was experiencing as someone who was following God, that leads him to a crisis of faith. Let me ask you, what was it for you? Like, what was it for you that led you to a crisis of faith? Have you been through that before? What's led to the crisis of faith that you're in right now? Because notice for Asaph, this is personal. It's not just intellectual. We think doubt is just purely intellectual. So we pat ourselves on the back when we go through doubts because we're, we're intellectually superior and everybody else, they're just not thinking. No, doubt is not opposed to faith. It's never just intellectual. Never. You may have intellectual questions and doubts, but it's never just intellectual because you and I are whole persons. And so it's also deeply personal. It's not just that he knows prosperous, wicked people exist. It's that he's looking at them. He wants what they have. And at the same time, he's in a season where he's experiencing suffering. And so what is it for you? Maybe it's injustice. Maybe Maybe you look out at the world and maybe in a, in a way that you had never seen or understood before, you are seeing and experiencing injustice in this world. And you think, how can a good God allow this? Maybe it's the suffering or death of a loved one. I think about, right now, I think about one of our pastor's granddaughters, three years old, who just was diagnosed with leukemia. Listen, when you're watching your three-year-old get chemotherapy, There's no cliches that can cure that kind of confusion and pain. Maybe it's your own suffering, physically or emotionally. You start to feel, God, why would you leave me in this? Statement of faith, you're a healer. But God, why are you leaving me in this? Maybe it's unanswered prayer, prolonged unanswered prayer. You start to think, is this even real? Maybe it is intellectual doubts. And you begin to experience the vulnerability of of your faith and how fragile and and, and weak your faith or your parents' faith actually is. And you go through intellectual doubts, and so you experience the the vulnerability and the embarrassment. Because you don't want to just do blind faith. Whatever it is, Many of us understand what it is to have a crisis of faith. And so what do you do in the midst of that? Like, What do you do when you're having a crisis of faith? What do you do when what you believe conflicts with what you experience or what, what you heard was true conflicts with what you're actually experiencing? What do you do? Well, I want to show you a few things from this passage And what I want to do with the rest of this passage from 15 through the rest is I just want to give you a framework 
because I'm not going to have time to truly just meditate on these specific verses. What I want to do is give you a framework that will help you sit with God and meditate on these verses. Let me tell you what they are up top. If you're taking notes, here's what you do. If you're experiencing a crisis of faith, you want to do four things. Number one, be honest. Number two, be active. Number three, be careful. And number four, be encouraged. Be honest, be active, be careful, be encouraged. Let me just briefly explain what these are and show you what I mean in these verses. Number one, you got to be honest. You got to be honest. And it starts with being honest with yourself. I'm speaking specifically to people who have grown up in church. So often I see this over and over again. When you experience doubts or you're going through a crisis of faith, so often because we feel so guilty about it or we're so afraid of where it may lead us, we can't even be honest with ourselves. We can't even bring ourselves to say, I'm not sure I believe that. And you cannot get to the other side of it until you face it directly. This is what is happening in my heart. But also you got to be honest with God. This is what we see Asaph doing. This is the psalm. It's why we're spending this time in the psalms. Because the psalms are actually invitations from God and actually like guidebooks from God to help us be honest with what we're feeling and experiencing, to be honest about that dissonance between what we believe and what we experience, to bring that to him. But notice what Asaph says in verse 15. He talks about his experience and what he's feeling and what he's thinking. And then he says in verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. What he's saying there is, remember, Asaph is a leader. Asaph is saying, God, I couldn't tell anybody what I was going through. He's too afraid to be honest with people in his spiritual community about his doubts. And I think for him, because he was afraid of how it might affect them. And so he's isolated, wrestling with these doubts alone. And listen, y'all, we have to be a community of faith that allows people, gives people room and space to process and work through their doubts. Because like I've been saying, doubt and faith are not mutually exclusive. We know that through Scripture. And I don't have time to show you, but it's all over the Bible. I think doubt is actually what God is talking about when he talks about testing your faith. I think he's talking about doubt. And it's only through those doubts, that's the furnace that actually strengthens your faith. Because now your faith is no longer superficial or inherited, but it's your own and it's on firm foundation. We have to create space in spiritual community for people to ask their questions and wrestle through their doubts and be patient with people. I just want you to know, like, this is an environment for you to be able to do that. you got to be honest. Number two, be active. The temptation when you go through a crisis of faith is to become very passive about your faith. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 16, he said, but when I thought how to understand this, he's trying to understand this conflict between what he believes and what he experiences. He says, it seemed to me to be a wearisome task. Listen, that will wear you out. He says this, verse 17, he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned therein. Well, I'll explain that. But look at what he says. He says, then I went into the sanctuary of God. Asaph continues to participate in corporate worship. He goes to the sanctuary with God's people. And here's why I point that out. Because what I see over and over again when people are experiencing a crisis of faith is they start neglecting the very things that actually build faith. Because they either lose desire or they start to begin to feel like a fraud. They're like, well, I'm having these doubts. So it's inauthentic for me to be reading scripture like I fully trust it. It's inauthentic for me to come to church and to be singing these songs. It's inauthentic for me to keep showing up to group because I don't believe in the same way that they believe. I'm struggling with that right now. But listen, when you're in a crisis of faith, you have to continue doing the things that actually build faith. Because God has given us what we call means of grace. There are certain things that God uses in our lives to build faith. 
I'm not saying it has to look the exact same way as when you're in a season of like strong faith and belief. It doesn't have to look the exact same. What I'm saying is don't fall into the temptation of just being like, you know what? I'm going through doubts, so I might as well not worship. I might as well stop reading the Bible. All the time, I'm talking to people. They have questions. Their faith is is rocky. I'm like, let's process your questions. Let's talk all that. And if they're a Christian, I'll ask, all right, what's your devotional life looking like? Well, I haven't really had, I haven't really read the Bible in like a year, to be honest, because I just struggle with it. And I get that. But that is a mistake. Listen, how, how many runners do we have here? Raise your hand. Runners. All right. Some of y'all are like tentative. I know, because some of y'all run. That does not make you a runner, okay? But there are some of y'all that are runners. And if you ask a runner, how did you start to love running? Let me tell you what they're not going to say. They're not going to be like, well, I read a book. Like in my grad school program, yeah, I took an elective on running. No. If you ask a runner, how did you start to love running, what are they going to say? I, I started running. It's the runner's high. It's your body beginning to adjust to what actually happens when you're running and the endorphins and being outside and what it, what it feel, what your lungs feel like. Your body begins to adjust to it and get addicted to that. In other words, like your activity begins to actually form your love. And James K.A. Smith talks about this. Christian theologian and sociologist, he talks about this. How, yes, what we, what we do, we do what we love, but also What we do shapes and forms what we love. And we know this in so many areas. I just mentioned exercise. We know it when it comes to changing your appetite and eating and all of that. The same thing is true spiritually. And James K.A. Smith talks about that is the power of what he calls liturgy. And he says it's not just religious people that, that go through liturgies. There's liturgies. Liturgy is just repetitive habits that form us. So there's repetitive habits in culture and in our families and in our day-to-day lives, and those things actually do affect our hearts. They shape our our hearts. They shape our appetites. And this is why worship is so important, not just worship as in come to church, but I'm talking about worship, a life of of repetitive habit of connecting with and communing, communing with God. James K.A. Smith says, worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. He says it another way. He says, liturgies aim our love. This is why I say don't stop doing the things that actually build faith. That will be the temptation in a crisis of faith. But you're going to have to trust God enough to keep doing the things that God says and trust that the Holy Spirit will be doing a work in your heart through those means of grace. So that's what I mean by be active, be actively engaged in what God says will strengthen and build your faith. Be honest, be active. Number three, be careful. When you're in a crisis of faith, be careful. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 18, Asaph is talking about the prosperity of the wicked and he realizes when he gets into the presence of God, he has more clarity, the vertigo begins to wear off and he says, oh, now, I, now it's, it's clear. He says, it says that then he discerned their end. And he says, verse 18, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Now, contrast that. Remember how he started this psalm. He said, God, I felt like my foot was slipping. But now he realizes, actually, that's not the case. Actually, it's the ones I'm looking at who do not obey God. They do not trust God's word. They're the ones who are in slippery places. Verse 19, he says, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. 
What, what Asaph is talking about, he's talking about God's judgment. And what he's saying is, is there's a moment of reversal. He's saying that the prosperity of those who, who don't follow Jesus, who don't obey God's word, is actually an illusion. It's like a dream. And one day they will awaken from that dream. One day all the things that seem so real and appealing about worldly success and acceptance and prosperity... Like one day, all of that stuff will wake up and we will realize it was all just an illusion. It was an illusion. You see, every single one of us, every single one of us, we deserve nothing good from God. We only deserve God's judgment. And God promises what we just read is going to be the experience of every single one of us who cling to our sin and reject God's offer of salvation through Jesus. Swept away by terrors. And God's judgment in that moment will be inevitable and it will be irreversible. There's nothing you can do about it in that moment. And we can't earn our way out of God's judgment. He is just. The only way for us to escape the judgment of God is to put our trust in what he's done for us in sending Jesus to die for our sins in our place. Receiving the righteousness of Jesus as the only the only record that can enable us to be acceptable to God and then trusting that Jesus actually rose from the grave and that he's the one authorized to give eternal life. That's the only way we can escape God's judgment. And so the end of disobedience to God, the end of unbelief and rejection of God's gospel is God's judgment. And that moment is inevitable and irreversible and it's a moment of overwhelming regret. I don't know how many of you, y'all remember uh, 2015 Miss Universe pageant? Some of y'all remember that. Let me, just, let me just remind you. Steve Harvey, Steve Harvey, you remember Steve Harvey is hosting the Miss Universe pageant. It gets to the end, it's down to these two contestants, Miss Philippines and Miss Columbia. And Steve Harvey says, and he says this, y'all, with like enthusiasm, great certainty. Like he says, Miss Universe of 2015 is Miss Columbia. And the whole crowd is going crazy. Tears are streaming down Miss Columbia's face. And she steps forward to like receive her crown. Like the other like women contestants or whatever are cheering her on and all of that. And listen, the problem is, Steve Harvey is literally getting a message in his ear that he accidentally called the wrong person. And there's nothing else you can do in that moment. Like, you just have to lean into it. And so literally, everybody's going crazy. Like, if you watch the video, the commentators are commenting and all that. And all of a sudden, you just hear Steve Harvey. He walks back out and he says, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry, I have to apologize. The runner-up is Miss Columbia. Miss Universe of 2015 is Miss Philippines. It's like awkward clapping, like the sadness drains out of Miss Philippines' face because she's realizing, oh, she's confused. You see it in her face. She's like, I'm, I won. She's so confused. There's a reversal in Miss, in Miss Columbia's face and all of that. Listen, listen. Here's what the gospel promises that there is going to be a great reversal at God's judgment. I'm telling you, the world says, these are the people who are winning. The people who are hustling, the people who are pursuing worldly prosperity, the people who are culturally accepted, like, look at them. They're beautiful. They're prosperous. They're so smart. They're whatever. They reject God. They abandon God. They live their own truth. Like, they're living their best life. Those are the people who are winning. You Christians are bigoted, misguided at best, foolish. And there is a time where God allows us to live in that delusion. And during that time, he's trying to communicate the truth and he's trying to reveal himself and he's giving us time, 
Second Peter 1, he's, he's patient with us because he desires to draw everyone to a re- repentance. But there will be a moment, and he, listen to me, this is what God says. There will be a moment where, where everything will become clear to everybody, Christian and non-Christian. And here's the other thing that scripture says, and everybody will agree. There will be no doubts. There will be no disagreement. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every single one of us is going to see clearly. All of us will agree on exactly what we're looking at. This is the King of Kings. This is the Lord of Lords. His way is righteous and just and true. Every single one of us will agree. But there will be a group of people who agree with that statement, and that will agreement will lead them into eternal regret. And there's a group of people who will agree with that statement one day face-to-face with God, and that agreement will lead to eternal and overwhelming joy. Why? Because those who trust in the Lord will not be put to shame. Why? Because in that moment, they will not just realize but fully experience what we've believed to be true in Psalm 1611, that in the presence of God is fullness of joy, and at his right hands are pleasures forevermore. We will experience the ultimate vindication of all the sacrifices that we made and all the days where we just had to put one step of faith in front of the other. And that's why I say be careful. Because there are some of you, some of you, who, as they used to say, are high on your own supply. Like your, your life and your intellect and whatever you've been able to like accumulate and gather for yourself has deceived you into thinking everything is sweet between you and God or that you don't really need him. And I know it's so hard. It is, it is a step of faith. It's not, I'm not saying it's easy to do. I'm saying this is one of those things where you are not going to have 100% certainty until that day. But God has given you enough in his word right now to stand on and say, God, I trust you. And there are some of you, some of you who are in a crisis of faith who are followers of Jesus. High school students, I want you to listen. Who are easily swayed and tempted by the ways of this world and how other people live and because of this cool, trendy, novel idea and the thing you read in a book that's just been regurgitated from years of things that have been refuted throughout church history. And you're tempted to throw away your faith because you're in a moment of doubt. And I'm just saying, be careful. Be careful. Because what you're pursuing is not the solution to what you're struggling with. That is actually more slippery ground than the doubts that you're walking through right now. So be honest, be active, be careful. Here's the last thing and then we're done. Be encouraged. Listen to me. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're in a crisis of faith, I want you to be encouraged. And I'm not talking about just a like pie in the sky, happy-go-lucky optimism. I'm talking about you can be encouraged because according to God's word, your faith has firm, solid ground to stand on. And that's what we see in verses 21 to 28. And what I want to invite you to do on your own time, I want to invite you to meditate on those verses. Like literally, like what I wish, if I had more time, which I know I don't. Like for us to meditate on these verses. And so listen, if you're taking notes, I just want to give you a framework for you to go home, get by yourself, and to meditate on these verses. If your heart is experiencing a crisis of faith, you can be encouraged because God is with you. That's 21 through 23. Look, he says, when, I, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. The vertical is weird off. He's like, man, I was wilding out. Like, God, I was... I was like a beast towards you. Look at verse 23. I love this. Nevertheless, God, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. Remember, he said, I felt like my feet were slipping. And now he realizes, God, you've been holding me the whole time. God's with you. 
be encouraged because God will guide you. That's verse 24. He says, God, you guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Would you listen? Please hear me. Your doubt is not mutually exclusive with your faith. Don't throw away your faith because you're experiencing some doubts. God promises to guide you. And what it says here is he will not just like guide you in the decisions of life. It's saying he will lead you home. He will guide you. If you're willing to just trust him, he will guide you to the end. It's that great benediction in Jude, now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before his presence with exceeding joy. God will guide you. You can be encouraged, verse 25, because God will satisfy you. He says, whom have in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you, God. It's more clear now. He's persevered. He's kind of on the other side, and he realized, God, all my satisfaction ultimately comes from you. And he's not saying there's nothing good in this world, but he's saying what C.S. Lewis articulated in mere Christianity. Listen, C.S. Lewis says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. You see, the things in this world that satisfy us are only designed to point us to God who will satisfy us for all of eternity. Don't throw away your faith because of unfulfilled desires. Don't throw away your faith because you're in a season of unanswered prayer and there's things that you want, not sinful things. You're just laying it before the Lord and it seems like he's not responding. He's not giving you those things and you begin to fear. Maybe he never will. Maybe I'll live the rest of my life without this thing. Don't throw your faith away because of that. Be encouraged because God will strengthen you. I know your faith is weak. Look at verse 26. It says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It's not about the strength of your faith. It's about the strength of the one you put your faith in. God says, I know your faith is weak. I know your fingers are trembling as you're trying to hold on. But all I need is a mustard seed of faith. Because the reality is, I'm holding on to you. God will strengthen you. He promises by his spirit in you. And then lastly, be encouraged because God will glorify himself through you. Your doubt has not disqualified you. Look at verse 27 and we'll end with this. It says, for behold, those who are far off from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Look at verse 28. I love this verse. But for me, it is good to be near God. I actually like the older translations better. It says, but for me, the nearness of God is my good. That's my definition of good. The presence of God is what is ultimately good to me. If I have everything else and the presence of God, great. If I have nothing else but the presence of God, I'm good. He says, I've made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. He says, that I may tell of all your works. Listen, listen. His crisis of faith actually becomes a platform for his testimony. And listen, this is what God is doing and will do through you if you hang in there. Because remember what I said, God in the midst of doubt and a crisis of faith is deepening and strengthening your faith. What happens in doubt if you stay, continue to trust God is what God is doing is he's pruning you. What God is doing is he's burning away, he's, he's peeling away the superficial layers of your faith. He's getting you over the cliches and all the things you've been saying but never really fully understood. 
And he's teaching you how to have a faith that's built on a rock-solid foundation. That's not just built on what your parents said. It's not just built on good circumstances. It's not just built on sun shining outside. But it's a deep, durable faith. This is what we see in Psalm 1. It's being planted by streams of water. And what happens is when you trust God and endure in those seasons and you experience what God does in your life, then it actually equips you even more because you'll be able to help somebody who's experiencing their crisis of faith. And what you'll do in that moment is when you talk to that person, you'll be able to talk to them as somebody whose faith has actually been through some things. You won't just be throwing cliches at them and just naive truths at them. No, you will be saying, listen, look at me. I understand what it's like to walk through a season of darkness like that. I know what it's like to believe God but not be able to feel him. I know what it's like to have heard God is good and yet struggle because he allowed this to happen to you or somebody that you love. I know what it's like to believe the Bible and then I'm reading the Bible and I see what appears to be a contradiction. I know what that's like. And you can walk that person through that. You can tell of God's great works because you've been through it. God will glorify himself through you as you allow him to work in you in this season of doubt. Let me summarize if you're taking notes. You're in a crisis of faith. Be honest. Be active. Be careful. Even when you feel weak, even when you feel like, ah, I just don't know, like on the authority of God's word, be encouraged. Find encouragement in what God says and trust him enough to let him bring you through to the other side. So I want to give us a moment to respond. And we're going to respond by singing, declaring our faith in God. And I love this song because as we sing this song, what we're declaring is that God can take a grave of doubt and he can turn it into a garden of faith and joy in the Lord. Like he, he, there's that great reversal that happens when we bring that to him. And it may not be instantaneous, but if we let him take us through his process over time, and he's promised to meet us where we are and not leave us there. And so as we're singing, maybe you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus. You're exploring Christianity. You have questions. You have doubts. Maybe the, today is the day that you say, you know what? I still have questions. I still have doubts. But I know enough to make a decision to follow Jesus today. I want to invite you to communicate that to him even while we're singing. And maybe you are a follower of Jesus, but you've been in a crisis of faith where what you believe is in conflict with what you're experiencing in your life. I want you to express that to him. Be honest with him. And maybe even sing these lyrics like on credit. <laughs> that God, I'm going to trust you enough, even though I don't feel it. I'm going to trust that what we're singing about, you can actually do that in my heart. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for your word. It's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Father, I pray, I pray, God, I pray that you would shine that light into our hearts. You would help us to trust you and continue walking with you. And where we are stumbling and slipping, to trust, God, that you will carry us. Thank you that you meet us where, where we are and you don't leave us there. You're the one who turns graves in the gardens, God. It's not just like a powerful anthem, Lord, a popular song. But that's a truth that we rejoice in and that many of us have experienced. So, God, increase our faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.